Hello, and welcome to Unsheathed with your hosts, Kyle Gold and Cam Hirosaki. We hope that you enjoy the program. Please stick around afterwards. There'll be cake and blowjobs. Hi, welcome to Unsheathed number 31. I'm Kyle Gold. I'm Cam Hirosaki. And we're delighted to be bringing you the results of our very first listener challenge. Um, before we get to that, a couple of just sort of random notes because we're random kind of fox and otters. Um, so forth is going to be up at Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle. So if you live in Seattle or in the Seattle area or would like to visit that lovely city and purchase some of our fine merchandise while you're up there, my books will be there. Um, some issues of Heat that Hirosaki san is in, as well as the Anthology X. Uh, many other fine works by such luminaries as, uh, let's see, Ursula Vernon, uh, Kevin Frayne, um, who else is on that list? Uh, Vince Suzukawa, uh, John Nonamaker, and, uh, um, oh, and of course, Arthur Husky, and, uh, and of course, Blotch. Dog Days of Summer will be up there. If you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who Blotch is and there's something wrong with your entry into the fandom. The the internet has broken for you. <laughs> uh, so please stop by and say hi. Uh, they always love to talk to people at the booths and at the comic conventions because they don't get a lot of furries there. They get a lot of people stopping by and saying, what is this furry stuff about? So always nice to have friendly faces. And... Uh, what else were we going to talk about? Uh, oh, yeah, we just got finished watching the the Academy Awards, or as they're colloquially known, the Oscars. It yep. is the same thing. Um, and it was uh, it was a good night, I believe. I think for uh, there, there are a few surprises, but I don't think any real shockers. It, it wasn't a good night for Foxes. George, no. George Clooney did not win anything, nor did Fantastic Mr. Fox, but... Uh, George Clooney was one of the highlights of the actual ceremony, though. I don't know if I saw the part where he did anything but sit and be funny in his seat. but uh, Which they kept coming back to. Yes, he was very Which entertaining. I thought At was one amusing. point he was telling the camera, get off me. <laughs> I think that was towards the end of the, of the night. You know, anyone would probably react like that with a camera in their face for three and a half hours. He's he's a handsome man and all, but I don't know if he needs it stuck in his face the whole time. Yeah, I don't I don't think so. Yeah. Just every now and then, they could do sort of a picture in picture thing where they just have like a little inset George Clooney all the time, <laughs> um, which would be which would be quite entertaining. No, I think actually Sandra Bullock's speech was the highlight of the night for me. Actually, yeah, the, the legitimate highlight I think was Sandra Bullock's speech, and um, it was because it was. It was very touching, and at the same time, uh, she's very funny. She's funny, and she had, like, flow with it, too. She was, like, really good at just sort of coming off the cuff without uh, stuttering. It's much yeah. like I'm not doing now, <laughs> as I'm trying to find words. And, and I'm sure that parts of it were prepared, but it certainly didn't sound prepared. It sounded sincere, and um, and she got very choked up at the point where she was thinking, who, uh, I didn't realize whether... She was adopted, or whether her mom adopted other kids, or something. Yeah, but it sounded like she was part of a a very extended family, and uh, and she got very choked yeah, up. Yeah, there that, there was is... some personal backstory in there, which uh... it was all very cool. She's she's officially forgiven for speed too. 
<laughs> which uh, that's no small feat. Well, let's see, just sort of in general, because we haven't really talked about our projects in a while. Um, I am still trying to finish this manuscript for the sequel to Out of Position, which so far does not have a name. It is currently longer than any other first draft manuscript I've ever written. Um, and it is still going on. It probably has another 10,000 words. I think it's going to land between 150 and 160. Um, that said, I didn't really quite discover what it was going to be about until uh, I got about uh, halfway through it. I had some inklings of it, but... So, you know, I'm not going to throw out the entire first part, but the sort of main thrust, I'm going to have to go back probably and correct a lot of stuff. Yeah. And for people who think that sounds weird that you could get halfway through writing something without knowing what it's about yet uh, completely, um, you know, for those of you who you know might be curious about that, that's actually pretty commonplace, I think, where, you know, as we've said before, we don't wait until we've completely formulated an entire story idea start to finish before we, you know, start to take it to, you know, pause the keyboard. So, you know, you let the idea sort of germinate as you're also working on it at the same time. And this is why editing and drafting is so important. Is and because, you know, the, the actual creative construction process, at least for me, it's so much of it involves putting it into words so you can sort of see the ideas. Because sometimes the ideas just aren't clear in your own head. And they'll become clearer, or you'll think it's going to happen one way, and then when you actually you know, start to write the situation, you'll see that it work, makes sense another way, and then you have to revise you know, earlier thoughts. And it's a very... It's, it's an ever-changing process, and you can't take that for granted, and you can't try to force it to not be a changing process. Yeah, and, I, and I think that's part of what makes editing fun, too, is a lot of people think, oh, if I have to go back and you know, cover the stuff I've already written. Well, the stuff that I already, the stuff that I already wrote, um, I didn't know how it fit into the story a hundred percent at the time that I wrote it. So I'm writing these early chapters and I'm kind of thinking, okay, I have a handle on, you know, what, what's going on with the characters. I know what kind of direction I want to take them, but it can be, it can happen sort of overnight as you're thinking about it, or it can happen in the middle of writing a, a dialogue between a couple of the characters where one of the characters, they, they sort of get into it and it escalates and it gets much more intense. And one character just comes out as the, as your channel, I'm making it sound like the characters are making this up and you're just writing down what they say. But what actually happens is as you put yourself into the head of the character and you're writing what they're saying, the things that sound natural to them will come to you as you're writing them. And sometimes you'll look at the conversation after you've written it and you'll say, Oh, yeah. That's his issue. That's what's driving him. That's what is making sense now. From, and then you kind of go back and you say, okay, now that I know that this is what's going on, and you know earlier that wasn't apparent to me, so I got to drop in some stuff in earlier conversations to support this, so that it doesn't come out of the blue like it just did for me when the reader's reading it. Yeah, and sort of to tie that into what I've been working on. Uh, people who listen to this and who have been following my Twitter keep getting cryptic updates onto this semi-major project that I keep mentioning, which is not the secret project. I I will get back to that as soon as life lets me. But uh, this is one of those things where I did a draft of it and you know realized that it needed to be something else. And I realized, okay, here's what the theme of the actual you know story is. And as I've been rewriting that... 
I also finally got to a point where, you know, through what I've been writing, I realized what, you know, the main character's big issue is. And I've had this whole new conflict now that's come out of that. And I'm able to do a lot more interesting stuff with it at, you know, just over the last couple of days. And I've been working on this for months. Um, and that's really cool when that happens. Yeah. And actually, this is, for people who might be interested, this is shaping up to be uh, the longest single piece of work uh, that I've done. I mean, I've, I've done serialized fiction that's gone on longer, but as far as, you know, a single coherent, you know, standalone story. I don't know how coherent it is. <laughs> it, you'll, Just due you'll, to the nature of it. When you read the rest know, of it, know, it'll, it'll make more sense. Um, and, and actually, another... Um, another interesting example of this is uh, Kit and I were recently loaned the comic series 52 by a uh, very kind Corgi, and we both finished reading it. One of the things that they include in the graphic novels is interviews with the creators, and it was written by four people uh, over 52 weeks. So the comic appeared weekly for a year, and it was supposed to be like a year in the life of the DC universe after the big crisis happened where someone died and someone went away. And, um, what you, what's revealed in some of the notes is they say, okay, we'd written this thing in and we knew something was going wrong, but we didn't know what it was. And they got 10 weeks into it and they were having a story meeting. And one of them said, Hey, how about if it's because of this character, we hadn't thought about that. And they would all kick it around and say, Hey, that makes a lot of sense. All right, let's start writing it that way. And so, and and it's kind of the same thing if you're as you're writing a novel, except that they're publishing the early draft, so they have to retrofit much more carefully than I do, because I can just go back and change the text. But, um, but you know, this happens all the time with long, especially with long works. Yeah. Did you want to say more about yours, or should we get on to reading? Um, other than to say that I don't have any super official plans for what I'm going to be doing with it. Uh, for people who want to have a grasp on how long it's going to be, it's probably going to be uh, roughly similar to the length of Bridges. For the folks of you out there who have had your chance to get your paws on that and read that, it's probably going to be a story about yay long. Um, so one preface before we start reading the, the entry. So the challenge that we'd given our listeners was write a paragraph that introduces a character. And by the end of the paragraph, you should have a good sense of who that character is and what they want. Um, and I went on to, we were getting kind of silly and tired at the end of the last episode, I believe. And so I made a couple comments about um, have your character calling Kim Hirosaki a bitch or getting into a fight with Kit. And uh, uh, I would just like to remind our listeners, please don't, write fiction using our characters, uh, at least without asking us. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's, we write, we write fiction about each other, but that's, yeah, we have implicit permission because we're doing it to each other. Well, and we actually had explicit permission as well. Well, I was afraid if I said explicit, people would think I meant something different. <laughs> I am, I use good word. I am. <laughs> Uh, so anyway, we we had we had a couple people um, put in uh, our character names. So we're gonna we're gonna read the entries, but we're just gonna replace the character names and don't take offense at that. Just uh, the uh, be you know respectful and think about 
you know, our characters and stuff. And as you send them in, and I was about I'm to say, how would rambling. you feel if I, we wrote about your character? And then I'm like, wait, no, they would probably like that actually. <laughs> uh, courteous, I think, is the word I was looking for. Courteous. I need more. I need more Coke Zero. Um, so we're gonna. We're gonna, I think, take turns just reading through these. We got, uh, we got some nice entries. We're not gonna read the names associated with each entry. What we're gonna do is we're gonna read an entry and then sort of chat about it. So we are reading all the ones we got. So if we read, if you recognize your entry, then you know, congratulations, we got it. If you don't, then we didn't get it as of Sunday, March, whatever it was, seventh. Okay. Oh, uh, so do you want to start? You want me to? Start, All right, I'll start. Okay. Alan hadn't meant to jostle the little scruffy white wolf and didn't notice the little guy twist his head and hiss, bitch. And just as well, for it might have worried the otter had he seen the look of sudden terror, seen the small shabby wolf face forward in a panic and try pathetically to act normal. Eyes front, please let him not have heard. If he heard, perhaps he would say something, and then the voices would start singing it mockingly, and the next thing you know my knife would have to start talking for me. So quickly, and the taste of iron and red, and why must every town reveal its wicked side so soon? Please don't let him have heard anything. Shut up. And won't my paws quit shaking? Curse them? Be still, little paws, or I shall hurt you until you bleed again. And, to be fair, the the author of this one did say that it took kind of a horrific bent that he didn't quite expect, and he felt it was a little scary. I was going to say, it, it kind of unsettles me a little. Yeah, and coming from me, that should say a lot. So, well, you your unsettling is more psychological than physical threat usually. Yeah, I'll, I'll grant you that. Um, I still don't people think. Uh, I still don't think people give me enough credit for the happy stuff I do write. Well, that's a whole other discussion. Um, so this is an it's it's very evocative paragraph. I mean, it certainly does stir emotions, and yeah, it. Uh, I'm I'm not sure how much it tells us about the main character, except that he's insane and presumably hurts and clearly kills mentally people. unstable. Right. Uh, there there is a voice shift from third person to first person, mm-hmm. which is a little jarring. But given the content, is either you know it could either be intentional or if it's not, it's not necessarily detrimental. Um, yeah, and what, you can if you're if you're doing kind of a mentally unstable character, you don't want to do a lot of this. Yeah, but you can do the kind of shifting around and making the reader guess at what's happening. Uh, I did get lost about the you know the voices singing mockingly, and the next thing you know, my knife would have to start talking for me. And um, so it seems like he's kind of a vengeful because he wants to punish wickedness. Yeah, it's like he's been down this road before. But um, but I'm not certain exactly where we are with him. But I think it is an effective intro in that it, I'm kind of interested in what happens next. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really, sure I want to read what it is, but I'm interested to see what it is. I'm morbidly curious, I believe, would be yeah, an appropriate phrase. Yeah, morbid curiosity. Like... I mean, I certainly, if I if I picked up a book where this was the first paragraph, I might say... You know, I don't think this is my style of book, but I don't think I would put it down and say I'm not interested. Okay, if that, yeah, that doesn't that makes complete sense actually. 
Um, so a nice job, actually. Very, yeah. very evocative. Um, my recommendations for that would be, I don't know. I don't know that I have anything that I would change except maybe sort of make it a little more clear um, where the first person shift is. If that's supposed to be, uh, I, I lost kind of which character the point of view is. Yeah. And, if uh, it was the otter or the wolf I, uh, he was holding. Yeah, and I also, I think the lack of having a physical context for what's actually going on sort of casts doubt in what's going on. But again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. All right. Nice. Next one. It took Lord Bridges an embarrassing moment to realize that he was the only one in the crowded dinner party still speaking. For the rest of the evening's guests had ceased their babbling. A hush had stolen across the gathered gentry. Their master had arrived. The earl descended by the stairs, but the way the tiger's feet barely seemed to touch the ground, backlit by the plush-red carpet, gave the appearance that he instead floated on a cloud of pure malevolence. On his face was a smile that didn't seem to reach all the way to his eyes, while his steel-gray eyes glared with a cold malice that stretched all the way to his smile. "'So glad you could attend my party, Lord Bridges,' the earl stated in a rolling growl that didn't sound glad at all. Courtiers parted between the smiling tiger and his prey like reeds before a charging rhino, and the earl stepped into the gap. A thin whine slid like a knife through the desperate silence of the ballroom as the tiger's claws dragged across the wine glass in his hand, just seconds before the fine crystal work shattered in his grip. So very, very glad. So one of the things I'm noticing here is that there is a lot of repetition which I think is deliberate just from the way it's written to sort of, you know, it's almost like going from like, instead of going from A to B to C, it's going A to B, B to C, C to D, like that sort of mm. uh, structure. Well, I definitely get a good sense of the Earl, who I think is the character he's introducing here. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a sense of a sense of power and that uh, and of evil. Yeah, of course. Uh, I have, I would, I would recommend kind of a change in a couple of the metaphors, but that's not related to introducing the character. Right. Actually, this is a good example of, and we didn't specifically call this out, but you don't need to, you know, be in the actual character's point of view to give the reader a good sense of what the character is like, or you know, to give them a sense of what you want the reader to think a character is like. Right. And often you can play around with the perceptions of the character. From the point of view character. Exactly. And, I mean, this is a, you know, as far as we can tell here, I mean, there's not necessarily enough wiggle room, but, you know, you can, you know, be surprised on that. Um, definitely, it feels like uh, Lord Bridges is not expecting the malevolence that was directed toward him. Yeah. Because otherwise he might have been a little better prepared. But, um... It seems like a courtly thing where it's not necessarily... Yeah, you know, direct physical threat, but certainly that doesn't make it any less real of a. Uh, you know. Right. All right. So, I mean, nice, nice introduction of the Earl, Big Tiger. Felines are good with evil. They are. That's okay. why all my superheroes are canids, because canids are good and just. Yeah, but Dev is good and sexy. That's true, but you know, I'm playing him against type. Oh, uh, he's still big and strong, and you know. But he's not evil. I didn't know evil was tiger type. No, it's kitty type. Oh, that's why that's why I killed them in all my books. 
<laughs> I was going to say, when you said, you know, kitties are evil, I was like, don't tell that to... <laughs> Never mind. Oh, uh, he's he's already come to the he's I already know. come to the. Fox I don't want to name names on the podcast. He knows who he is. He does. Does he listen to this? I don't know if he does or not. Okay, but he's a fox. Um. Okay, so yeah, nice. All right, third one. In her childhood, Val dreamed of being a fire engine. As an adult, she settled for being strange. Though I sometimes hear soft sirens in her sleep. I turn to find her several paces back, still as stone and staring. This happens. Her peasant dress, which she has dubbed the royal standard of the eggplantia, caresses her bare white hindpaws, breeze-blown. Her diamond eyes, differing in color, survey the deep reaches of space. Her husky radar dishes cock at uneven heights, quivering, as if some lost spy satellite has aligned with them and is beaming ethereal music to her brain. I watch, held fast, as if I too am caught in her uplink. As always with her freezes, her tail thaws first, then a smile curls over her snowy muzzle. She hops in the air, wagging with profound sincerity. Oh, wow, Mousie, a slice of bologna is a two-dimensional hot dog. Um, so that's very cute. I like, um, I actually think the last line, which I really like, gives us a great sense of the character. Yeah, and I think that though that's a great sense of personality. I think the rest is a great visual uh, image, and it starts sort of piece by piece, mm-hmm. and kind of almost literal like part for part of sort of describing like what happens and sort of like what to sort of expect. And like with this sort of mental imagery now and other scenes, you know, with this character, you know, you can just sort of you know mentally insert strange mannerisms as appropriate without the uh, writer necessarily necessarily having to keep throwing them in your face and making it really repetitive and played out. Right. Um, And I think I would actually, I could actually drop the first couple sentences about the fire engines and it would still be a good intro to the character. You could just start with, I turned to find Val several paces back, still as stone and staring. This happens. Yeah. (laughs) I actually really like the way that's phrased. I do too. Just the again, this, there's uh, some good uh, sentence structure and you know varying sentence length in here to sort of for effect, which I I think is pretty good. Um, yeah, it's it's really nice. I will I will say that the phrase "husky radar dishes cock" when I read it <laughs> um, suggested something else to me. When um, the word "husky" is within half a dozen words of the word "cock" in a sentence, it sort of picks up. <laughs> Yeah, so... If you run this through your NSFW scanner at your workstation, it would be flagged as unsafe. Yeah, I think, um... But uh, but that's probably just me. Uh, and you. And, <laughs> oh, thanks. And and uh, the majority of our listeners probably actually, too. Yeah, if anyone's, like, listening to this podcast at work and they sort of tune it out and they just heard Husky and Cock right back to back, they're like, wait, hold on, rewind. And like, oh. Yeah, poink. Um, I like uh, I like the royal standard of the eggplant show. I'm not sure what it means. I assume that means it's purple, but yeah. Um, but it's nice, and uh, and the dialogue. I think what this um, this one and the last one have in common is that dialogue really reveals character well. If it's written well, dialogue really is a window in the character. I mean, not sort of hi, how are you doing, but the dialogue phrases here 
are ones that really express what the character is. Yeah. And that's a big technique, especially with things like, you know, TV shows and movies where, you know, that's where you're getting a lot of characterization from is what they say and how they say it. Although we were, uh, Kit and I were watching an episode of House the other day and Kit was remarking that all the dialogue is very pointed and direct, like, you know, well, I would go out with you, but I think you're married to your job. I would like to have that kind of passion in my life, but, you know, I don't, I don't think this will work out. And nobody ever says nobody ever says that. Yeah, but within the show, the kinds of characters that would say that are revealed, and they do a very good job differentiating House and his staff. At least from the early seasons, I haven't seen so many of the more recent ones. But anyway, okay. Next one. Next sample. As soon as I opened the front door, my senses were met by the aroma and clamor of a busy kitchen. By this time, Maribel was always far along with her cooking, and judging by the tone of her voice, she had both of our little rascals in there with her. Upon entering the kitchen, I was greeted with a daddy's home and two emphatic hugs around the waist from Jimmy and Wes, but only a fleeting kiss from my wife before she darted back to the stove to tend to a simmering squash soup. I knew better than to offer any help. My kitchen, my domain, I could hear echoing in my head, and I'm pretty sure I caught a glimpse of it in her eyes as well. Defeated, I continued on to the living room, beckoning the boys to follow. The least I could do was allow her to focus on her handiwork. And again, this is another, you know, good example of, you know, using another character as sort of a lens to uh, detail uh, a second one. And, you know, again, this is uh, a sort of a typical scene to sort of show a character in a normal situation as how you can expect them to be you know, in an ordinary situation can, you know, sometimes just be really effective in its own right, rather than, you know, putting them in something, you know, peculiar or, you know, extremely situational. You know, this is sort of, you know, you know, you have a husband wife couple here. It's like, this is what's important to, you know, sort of the day-to-day perception here. And that's what's being shown here. And what, what all, the other thing that happens with this one is there's a nice tension set up um, in a bunch of the sentences I knew better than to offer any help. Right. Which suggests he's offered help in the past and has been rebuffed. My kitchen, my domain suggests a lot of authority. And again, he's trying to intrude and she's pushing back. And then the last one defeated, I continued on into the living room. Yeah. So there's there's definitely tension there. He wants to be more involved and she he wants to be more involved in maybe the parenting or maybe the domestic stuff, but she's very controlling. Yeah. You've mentioned on the podcast before uh, interactions between characters being delineated by status and then yeah. exchanges of status. And this is an excellent, excellent example of how to use that where, you know, it's clearly there in both the text and the subtext, but you're not, you know, putting it in a pneumatic nail gun and hitting the reader between the eyes with it. Right. And so, uh, so I like this one because it does set up for me, it sets up what's going to be, if not the main conflict, at least a sub-conflict throughout whatever story would follow. And uh, even even the very last line where it's like, the least I could do is allow her to focus on her handiwork. It's sort of, there's just resignation in the way that's phrased. Right. Which, uh, which actually, suggests some other stuff in the, ba- in the past. Yeah. Actually, I, I really like this one. All right. Next one. 
Whatever anyone else might say, Joe was careful, even responsible. It didn't matter who she fucked, she made them wear a condom. She got checked out once a month, twice on busy ones, to make sure that she wasn't carrying anything. Whatever the rumors were about STDs and furs never getting any, Joe liked to be sure that whoever's hands were on her, a friend's or a client's, would not come away itchy. She'd never gotten one herself, of course, but she might have sort of accidentally shared one on behalf of a few people who she slept with. That had been embarrassing when she worked it out. Plus, if she kept clean, she didn't have any conflict on which out of all the things on her budget she could spend her money on, medical stuff or clothes. This one, uh, I like you start out with the a character trait. Joe was careful, even responsible, and you say whatever anyone else might say. So immediately what you get is what other people think of her as well as what is most important to her to be thought of. Yeah. Our, uh, our screenwriting teacher once said he had a woman say to him, so she did something and then said, I don't want to seem rude. And he said, I knew immediately the most important thing to her at that point. She didn't care about being rude. She cared about people thinking she was rude. Yeah. And, uh, and I kind of get this from Joe as well. And then we actually get the confirmation later that she had an embarrassing incident and she's determined to make up for that. That's, I think it's very consistent all the way through. Yeah, and this is, uh, the other thing that this uh, illustrates really well is the tone of language used helping to, you know, say things about the character. Even though these are not necessarily her words that she's using, it's sort of the terms in which she would think and, you know, as she would probably express herself. And that's very telling, too. It's very, it's close third person. Yeah. So it's really Joe's voice. And the narrative voice saying things like, she might have kind of sort of accidentally shared one, is her evading responsibility for it. Um, we also find out towards the end that she's on a tight budget. But, um, I mean, we know immediately what she does. We know what the most important thing about that is. It's that she be careful and responsible. It's not that she be the best. It's not that she make people happy. It's just that she's careful and responsible. Um, so that's great. I mean, that's, we know a lot about her right off, right off the bat, just from this one paragraph. So well done there. I'm wondering if I should say anything about the use of the word, uh, furs as a synonym for people, <laughs> but uh, that might be just me poking at your ribs more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I, poke, poke. I, I wouldn't do it specifically. I think if you, if you introduce it in the world as contextual in the world as opposed to just sort of dropping it in um that was going to be my exact thing that i was going to say if you didn't were you yeah we were on a, we're on a wavelength oh dear yeah i'm i'm tuning into auto radio with your big fox <laughs> radar cock or whatever radar <laughs> fox cock and ears <laughs> All right. Shall I move on? Why don't you move on? Okay. You're just jealous because your ears aren't barely visible. And yeah, I know. <sighs> don't remind me. I don't have to. Just go look in a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read a thing now. <laughs> Why don't you do that? 
black and blue and red all over. People usually thought that was a newspaper, but after an hour in the ring with his brother, down at the hotel gym, it was Earl. With their hands wrapped up in clean, straight-edge white tape at the start, the two dogs ended up with murky, sweat-smeared strips of cloth and backing fouled with tangled fur. The cloth was sometimes left spotted with blood, usually loose at the edges, but it was always left pinching down on their swollen, bruised fists. They didn't have time for anything so civil or genteel as rounds or scoring, no. They set a timer and kept it up for an hour. It was cleansing, almost spiritual, and it took Earl's mind off of the business admin course he'd been struggling with for two years. So, again, this is a, this sort of has the similar visceral feel to the very first paragraph that we read, and it's, again, you're equating... In this case, it's sort of character with event and character with place. And you sort of have to form like a mini scene where, you know, that's where you sort of see this character in. Uh, and this is, this feels very sort of like opening of movie type setup in a way. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, it's a lot of physical description. It actually yeah. reminded me a bit more of the, Although different in tone, it reminded me more of the the one with the the husky staring off into space because there's lots of lots of very physical descriptions to introduce you to the character. Mm, um, okay. the The thing that's the thing that interests me um, is that you don't get a reason for it. It's just yeah. you know him and his brother beat the crap out of each other until the last sentence. And then you say they find something cleansing. They find something spiritual in the physical sensation. And it's contrasted to the academic life that he leads when he's not yeah. exchanging fisticuffs. And again, you've got this really raw physical situation. But the sentences that are used are very long and flowing. And they're not quite stream of consciousness, but they start to get there. They're, they're, they're almost elegant. Yeah. Um, I will say that murky sweat, murky sweat smeared strips is a little bit awkward to read, um, and I think it, I think this, these are all obviously early drafts, but that's one of the things it stood out a little bit for me from the rest of the paragraph, um, language wise. It requires linguistic gymnastics. Yeah, I think if you said murky sweaty strips, that might. Um, that sounds like a really bad dog treat. <laughs> like I don't want to eat that. Murky, sweaty, husky. Never mind. <laughs> well, oh, going, you can say that. I'm all you going. Want. I'm going bad places with that one. I'll, I'll, I'll click the do want box on that one. <laughs> all right. Um, so we know about Earl, the boxing, boxing dog, boxing dog. So it's time to meet Charlie. He stepped out of the way politely, making it easy for him to be missed. He was just another guy with a mop and bucket, one of the unassuming quiet mass of those wearing coveralls and a hat with a logo that branded him as belonging to the hotel. The pair of them glanced back at Charlie, and that's when they actually saw him in his heavy, armor-scaled tail. They stopped and stared, not because of his tail, but because of his tongue. There were rumors about that tongue, and about whether or not anteaters and pangolins like Charlie really had the same kind. So we'll get a little bit about 
Charlie here that he's he prefers probably not to be the center of attention, and yet because of his species, he's made the center of attention, which is a good um, good source of conflict for a story. Yeah, it's sort of uh, I don't want to say fish out of water because that's not quite the same situation here, but uh, there's a metaphor I'm missing. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I, I know there's one, but yeah. I, I'm I'm not really seeing it either. But um, but most of the character development of Charlie actually is in the first couple sentences here. Um, this is a good opening, but um, most of what we get afterwards is how people view him. And, again, they're mostly interested in him because of his body, but not in the way that maybe some of the other ones are. For me, it also sort of helps, you know, that, that, you know, you have his impression of his, you know, clearly trying to, you know, keep himself out of notice. And so what other people do think of him, you know, does relate to that at least, you know, fairly strongly. Right. Um, It's interesting to see how people use species here, because we got... um, I don't think we figured out what Joe's species was, and the she's something furry, something furry, and then um, Maribel in the kitchen. I don't think we, she had a species, and uh, let's see, Val was a husky, the other one was a tiger, and the other one was an otter. So sometimes, you know, you don't get a species if the species isn't an important part of the character, you didn't get it right away. But here, it definitely is. Also, penguins are inherently hilarious. That's true. I, I I remember discovering pangolins a long time ago and just thinking, that's great. Like a armadillo with scale mail. That was back in my D&D nerd days. It's like a rust monster. <laughs> All right, you go read something. Read a thing now. As the sun disappeared over the crest of Draymore Hill... Jason gripped the pen ever tighter in his paw, and attempted once more to compile his thoughts upon the yellowing pages of his journal. He was, however, distracted as he gathered his maps yet again from a northeasterly wind that blew through his matted chestnut fur, and he momentarily glanced for the hundredth time that day at the ringed location before him. Although he had long since lost sense of time, a raw determination and a keen ability to navigate the land around him had willed the fox further into the depths of this wretched place, allowing him to cover a distance of 654 miles since the day he left those many moons ago. So there's a definite sense here of, you know, you know, intellectual orderliness. There's, you know, this is a character who definitely has a distinct thought process and, you know, the specifics and sort of like the rote of, you know, what's going on is clearly very important. There's a sense of, you know, a very sharp memory. Uh, there's exact numbers being used. And that sort of, you know, portrays a lot about the thought process. Right. And I was going to say, this one, we don't we don't get a lot about the character as much as the situation. Where you get a sense of this character kind of having reached a point and being a little uncertain as where to go next. Yeah. Um, so it, it's an interesting start to a story. Um, I think you're, you're definitely right about the sense of orderliness and, but also 
you get a sense that he likes order, he likes things to be recorded, but he's also apparently easily distracted. Um, although we're not told by what. Yeah. So he's just, he's trying to get his thoughts down and he can't quite seem to keep them. So you get maybe a sort of an absent-minded librarian or absent-minded record keeper kind of vibe from him. Like I almost wanted to venture into like almost like Rain Man, but not quite. Yeah, I don't, I don't quite get that. No, um, it does mention. I mean, a lot of this is stuff that we're we're getting out of the text, but then we're told he has a raw determination and a keen ability to navigate. But again, we don't know what he's determined. What's driving his determination? Why is he so determined to navigate the land? Right. Um, and also, I'm not sure what a ringed location is. Yeah, which, I mean, I also want to see what the next paragraph is so I can know what's actually going on here. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, for that, I, I think this one, if we're if we're using just a paragraph as an exercise to introduce a character, I'd put in more about the character and a little less about the situation in which he finds himself. Or use the situation a little more explicitly, you know, show us the raw determination instead of just saying raw determination and an ability to navigate the land around him, say, you know, he'd come, he'd come this far in search of the ring of Aragorg and he was not going to be determined, deterred no matter how filthy the land was, no matter how much dust blew into his fur. Um, he had come further than any other person was able to. He had deciphered the old maps and, you know, this tells us about the character and the situation at the same time. I'm putting you to sleep with my narrative. I'll move on. To no, 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 you're not. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something to add on to that, and I think that you know, I think that you sort of hit on the points I wanted to. All right, I'm sharing a wavelength again. Only a wavelength, Kit. It's all right. Kit and I are sharing a wavelength too, but it's a different one. My book Bridges will be for sale at um, Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle and at uh, Furry Weekend Atlanta in Atlanta. So you should go pick that up if you're interested about a fox sharing wavelengths with two different people at the same time. And our last entry in characters, well, Came Hirosaki ponders that mental image. He looked down at the seemingly ordinary warehouse many stories below him. The trail he'd been following had finally led him to his foes. The question was, though, who he might find inside. It couldn't be the Mormon Shrieker. That lunatic was still behind bars for his heinous breaking of the Federal Bank. Nor could it be the Heartland Harvester. All the clues so far pointed to either Leadhead or the Klondike Driller. The masked hero sighed in resignation, wondering how people could stoop to such radical, unbalanced views and tactics of the world. He would find out soon enough, though. The world was in chaos, lost to extremist ways. A gloved finger pressed a button on his shirt cuff, releasing a plethora of helium balloons from a concealed compartment on his back. Whoever lay inside, they would be no match for the bipartisan justice of neutrally buoyant Obama. We're going to need another moment for K.M. Hirosaka to recover from that one. Uh, So this is is amusing. Of course, it's a... um, The punchline is the very last line of the sentence. Um... And it's it's quite entertaining. I love the names of the villains as well. Oh yes. Um, <laughs> the uh, the fact that someone has a villain called a Mormon Shrieker kind of tells us what state the person's from. But uh, I like the Klondike Driller. <laughs> I, I do too. 
<laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> ah, I'm getting more. I'm getting more of the the jokes behind these. Yeah. Once when you go over it a few times, you're like, ah ha ha. Yeah, Klondike Klondike Driller kind yeah, of. Yeah, that took you a second. Was the first, It did take me yeah. a second. Um. I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Yes. Uh, from a serious writing standpoint, it's um, it's very much a, an introduction to a, a comic book superhero. Yeah, and it's uh, it's well done uh, for that. And uh, it, it's sort of almost like you say it's it's almost like sort of like a textbook superhero introduction, but there's there's actually some legitimate humor in there. Which, you know, a lot of that pertains to timeliness and topicalness. Right. But uh, and, and we get a sense, of course, that this hero is not a new newcomer to the hero biz. That he's dispatched some other villains before. Despite what other charges people might levy against him about lack of experience. Yes, indeed. Um... So well, well done. Very entertaining, and uh, thanks everyone who wrote in. This was a lot of fun, and you're encouraging us to do more challenges in the future. Yeah, we'll have to uh, come up with a good idea that uh, people can contribute to. You know, actually, there's two things that about this challenge that surprised me. Was one was the number of entries that we actually got, which was more than I thought we were going to get. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Although and- one one person did contribute three times. So well, still, it's still a which lot. is still good. Uh, the other is you know who actually sent stuff in. There are some people I was expecting to hear from that we didn't. Uh, that's true. Although which many, is not an many of our regulars, y'all. many of our regulars did chip in, and many uh, many people that we know are regular listeners to the podcast, but don't write in very often, did chime in, and that was nice too. Yeah, I think I'm mostly surprised that we were able to read on the air every entry we got. With slight alterations. With slight alterations, some. yeah. Um, and we even, yeah, had... and we did not actually create entries to the challenge ourselves, but no. So thank you for Kit. Thank you to Kit for suggesting that uh, challenge, and uh, we'll come up with a couple more. People seem to have had fun with it. He is wise and wolfy. He is. He is uh, savvy about more than just tech. And uh, we're gonna actually. What we can do is we'll post the challenges on the. For Affinity Journal. Okay. So we can post that as a as an actual submission or something from Unsheathed. Do we need to get permission from people? Uh, yeah, we probably should. I mean, technically, we write them on the air and we therefore aired them publicly. But that's true. If we if we just post them without the names, then if people want, they can take credit for them, and if they don't want, then they don't have to. Okay. But. We can always write back and just say, do you mind if we post them on the site? So we will post the ones we get permission to post. We're kind and caring podcast hosts. Exactly. We're here for you. Considerate and courteous. And uh, that email address again is unsheathedpodcast at gmail.com. The FA account is just unsheathed because nobody took unsheathed before we did. Um... We don't have a Twitter yet. I don't really know what we'd do with one, but I'm Kyle Gold on Twitter. and Yeah, and I'm Cam Hirasaki. And people who follow the show know how to find us. I, I believe they do. Um, I don't really have anything else. I think we're going to be... We're going to be... 
well, we won't be, but we'll be selling stuff up in Seattle through uh, Sofa Wolf. We'll be selling stuff at FWA through Fur Planet. Um, we'll be, I think the next one after that, Sofa Wolf is again going to be at uh, WonderCon in San Francisco the first weekend of April. We'll talk about more about those as they come up. And then after that, it's just a long run up to Anthrocon, I believe. Yep. So, save up your money and uh, keep on writing. It's a good long stretch where nothing's going on that you can get some good work done. And uh, keep us posted on what your projects are, and we'll do the same. It's a good long stretch. Sorry. <laughs> wow, ever since you... Never mind, I'm just not going to go there. This is uh, Kyle Gold wishing you all a very good night. And this is Cam Hirosaki wishing you uh, Yiffy Dreams. I was not going to say that. You were thinking it. No, I was trying to think of something clever and writing related and I have apparently failed miserably. You're you're you've run out of words. I flustered myself. <laughs> Good night and keep writing. What do I win? <laughs>